0: Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Why do people do bad things? It's such a simple question, is it not? Why do people do bad things? But we find that every answer that we can give to it oversimplifies things. The economist might say that people do bad things because of income inequality. Yet, our world's never been more wealthy, and there's never been more bad things, so it seems. The teacher might say that people do bad things because of education deficiencies. And if we simply had more education, then people would stop doing bad things. Again, we've never lived in a more educated world, yet there are a lot of people who do bad things. The therapist might say that people do bad things because bad things were done to them as a child. And so having experienced childhood trauma, they respond and and act accordingly. There's some truth to all three of these, yet each one of them oversimplifies the problem. Don't we have a tendency to oversimplify the problem of why people do bad things? One time, many years ago, I was in a chiropractor's office and I picked up a little book that they had on the waiting table. And in the book, I read that Adolf Hitler would not have started World War II if he had gotten his regular adjustments. (laughs) We have a tendency to oversimplify why people do bad things. There's no silver bullet. But friends, the Bible offers us the most well-rounded understanding of why people do bad things. And the reason why the Bible offers us the most well-rounded understanding of why people do bad things is because it doesn't simply look at the, the, the issues in, in silos, but it looks at the issue underneath all of the issues. It looks at our heart motivations, and it looks at why people actually do things that we would consider bad. So let's dive into the story of Cain and Abel. It serves as a case study, actually to the effects of the fall. Last week we read about how Adam and Eve committed the first sin in the Garden of Eden. They were kicked out of the garden, and here we are having their first children, and the children just cannot get along. And this story, and the story that we have in Genesis, serves as a case study to understand the effects of sin and how it's affected the world. Verse 1, we're just going to dive right in, church. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up and look at it with me. Uh, Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it says things, and you just say, well, that's a weird way of saying that, okay? If, if someone brought a baby into our church next week, and it said, I have gotten, a, and, and it was a baby boy, and they said, I have gotten a man, you would be like, okay, like, I guess, like, yeah, That's a weird way of saying that. And it's intentionally weird. Nowhere else in the scripture is a baby boy referred to as a man in this kind of way. Yet it is clearly a man that she has been given by the Lord with the help of the Lord, so it says. And I don't know what was going on in Eve's head when she said it that way. Maybe Eve is thinking about the promise that the Lord gave her last chapter. That one of her offspring would one day rise up and crush the head of the serpent. And maybe she's hoping that this little boy is the promised deliverer. It would make sense as to why she would hope that. God did not specify how many generations would go between her offspring so that we would have a promised deliverer. But maybe she's thinking it's that man who the Lord had given her. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so church, there's a really obvious question. When we read the scriptures, it's okay to ask our questions. When we get here, it's a really obvious question. It's why why would the Lord regard Abel's offering and not Cain's? It seems like they both are making well-intended offerings to the Lord. And we don't know exactly. Sometimes the, the scripture writers like to show us more than tell us. Sometimes the narrative, the narrator is a bit sparse in what he's telling us, but they show us throughout the story narrative. So as we unfold, we get to know this a little bit better. But Even here, there's a little clue as to why the Lord accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's, and it's in how the offering was given. It says that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portion. That means that he brought the good stuff. He brought the very best that he had. He did not keep back and just give out of the leftovers, but he brought the very best. I grew up in a church that liked to dress up for for church, And this was one of those verses that they went back to. When we come to church, we bring our very best. And there's some reasoning for that. Obviously, we don't hold to that same theology around here. Um, But, uh, so, so, so looking out at you guys, it seems. Some shabby looking folks in here. But I do. But we get the impression that his sacrifice was out of a, A deep love and affection for the Lord. That he gave the Lord his very best. Later in the book of Hebrews, we learn that Abel's sacrifice was given by faith. And it implies that Cain's was not. When we look at Cain's offering, it simply says that he brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And this insinuates that Cain did not bring his very best. Now, it's a really interesting passage because Cain is doing the right thing. It's not like he's offering a sacrifice to Satan. It's not like he's made a statue to the serpent somewhere and he's bringing a a, a sacrifice there. But sometimes we learn here that you can worship, you can talk to, you can pray to, you can bring a sacrifice even to the real God and do it with the wrong motivations. You cannot assume that someone who who is at church is worshiping the Lord in the same way as everybody else. You can be a member of a church, you can give, you can tithe, and yet do it out of a selfish motivation that really wants to see glory to self more than glory to God. And we have the reason here that Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Maybe he was giving because his brother gave, and he wanted to keep up with his brother, Maybe he was just giving because he felt like it was the right thing to do. We don't know why he was making this sacrifice. But whatever reason it was, God rejected Cain's sacrifice. But I want you to catch this. He did not reject Cain. He rejected his sacrifice, but he did not reject Cain. Look at verse, uh, end of verse 5, he says, So Cain was very angry, and his face Fell. This is a very interesting verse in the Hebrew. It says, So anger burned exceedingly through Cain. Oh, doesn't that give a mental image of how he's feeling? Who's ever felt that before? Anger burning exceedingly through you. Hmm. Cain's emotions are getting out of control. And why are his emotions getting out of control? It's because he's not getting what he wanted. He was hoping that that sacrifice would bring God's favor. He was hoping that that sacrifice would at least keep him equal with his brother, yet it did not. He was not getting the desires of his heart. They went unmet, and they led him to feel angry. Isn't that the same reason all of us feel angry, is that the desires of our heart go unmet, and we have anger burning exceedingly through us? And the Lord said to Cain, verse 6, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be Accepted? God looks at Cain's anger and he says, Cain, I haven't forsaken you. I haven't forsaken you, but it's obvious that you've forsaken me. If you do right, will I not receive you? Look, I'm right here. I'm talking to you. I haven't walked away from you, I haven't sent you away. I just want you to give with the right motivation. But the problem here is. Wasn't that Cain's offering was rejected? I want you to see that. Cain actually did not care if his offering was rejected or accepted. If he only cared that his offering was rejected, the Lord gave him an answer to that. The Lord said, hey, if you do it right with the right heart intention, I'll accept it next time. No, what Cain cared about was the fact that his brother's offering was accepted. This is basic brother stuff, is it not? How many of us have brothers here or a sister, a sibling somewhere? I'm an only child. I feel like preaching on Cain and Abel as an only child is like preaching on marriage as a eunuch, okay? There's just some aspect of I can't get this. Uh, There's some aspect of it. But I have three kids, and so I see this played out all the time. We've all seen this played out time and time again. Cain was perfectly happy with what he had until he saw that Abel had better. And he wanted what Abel had. I can just hear his internal monologue about how God is playing favorites. Cain is saying, I work hard. I do the right thing. I'm the oldest. I'm supposed to be the favorite. Mom's been telling me I'm going to crush this serpent since I was born. And how dare he? Was my offering not good enough? How dare he reject my offering? I think this reveals something really nasty about the human heart. And it's this. That we can be perfectly content with what we have until we see that our neighbor or our brother has more. One thing that we say is that in our household, is that you never look at someone else's plate. You only look at your plate. You never worry about how, some, how much someone else has. As long as you have enough, that's, that's good. Why do you care what someone else has? But it's this human desire to have more, to win, to be better than, to be more favored than others. When I was in youth group back in the day, when I was 15, I saved up all of my money and I bought... A little red 1988 Ford Ranger, and I loved that 1988 Ford Ranger. This is back in 2002, okay? So it wasn't quite that long. It wasn't quite as old as what it sounds like now. But it was my first car, and I loved it. I was proud of it. I drove it around. My uncle fixed it up for me, and I still remember the day that I came to youth group and I parked my my little red truck there. And then a girl named Lisa drove in with a blue 2003 Honda Civic. And she got out of her car, and she was smiling. And I'll tell you what, I wanted to wipe that smug smile off of her face and take a lug nut, lug nut wrench to her windshield. It's what I wanted to do. Because I was so happy with my truck until I saw that someone else had something better than I did. Does this mean that she's more loved? Does this mean that she's better than I am? She's suddenly getting more attention. Here's the secret to why people do bad things. People do bad things because they want the desires of their own heart more than they want the desire of God's heart. People do bad things because they want to define what is good and evil themselves as opposed to trusting what God says is good and evil. This is the heart of every sin and every evil in the world, that people do bad things because their hearts love themselves more than they love God. And this is what, happen- what is happening to Cain. His heart loved himself more than he loved God. He didn't care about God's approval and love. All he wanted was to be better than his brother. He was the firstborn after all. And so here God goes into more detail about why people do bad things. He continued to to explain this. And he says this to Cain. He's speaking to him. "And, And if you do not do well, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. What a picture of what sin looks like in our world. God describes sin like a beast ready to pounce on its prey. He describes, Satan, uh, he describes sin as crouching at the door making itself look smaller than it actually is always intending evil for its prayer for its prey sin insists it is smaller than what it really is i don't have a drinking problem i just like to have a good time i'm not materialistic i just like nice things i don't overwork i'm just a good employee Porn's not really that big of a deal. It's just a few pictures on a screen. You see, our our minds and our hearts will always rationalize our sin and minimize our sin because sin is crouching, hiding, insisting that it's smaller at our door. Our sin will convince us that our vices are actually virtues. I don't overwork. I'm just determined. I'm a good employee. Sin is positioned so that you think that it's not really a big deal. But friends, the sin that's crouching at our door is never sitting at our door. That sin is ready to pounce. That means that we might not even realize what's going on before it happens. That's the very idea, that it's ready to pounce. You think... You might think just one more drink, one more pair of shoes, one more explicit video, one more task on my to-do list. And the next thing you know, you're drunk, you're maxing out your credit cards, you're skimming Tinder looking for a casual hookup, you're staying up all night, an anxious mess trying to please your boss. Sin attacks when you're not really paying attention. It's crouching, it's waiting, it's hiding. This means that, church, friends, some of your biggest problems right now, some of your biggest sins, you might not even know what they are and they might be some of your favorite parts of your life. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you And you must rule over it, church. We must not take this lightly. It desires to kill us. Its desire is contrary to you. It desires to kill you. It looks small, but after it pounces, it will destroy your life. One step after the next. It doesn't look like a big deal until all of a sudden it is. And then you wonder, how did I get here? And friends, I'm not talking about anything that is abnormal. I'm talking about your normal life. Sin is crouching at your door each and every day. We just need to have that in our mind, that our hearts are deceptive above all things. We cannot trust the things that we want, and we always have to be going back to God's Word and delighting in Him. It's powerful. It desires to kill us. As John Owen, the Puritan, put it, he said, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Verse 8 Cain leaves God. He obviously doesn't listen to what he has to say. And he goes out to speak to his brother Abel out in the field. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, friends, up until this very moment, you would have said, Cain, he's a good guy. Cain, he's given his sacrifice to the Lord. Cain, he's, he's the firstborn. He seems to have his life in order. And it just took one moment of insanity for him to take a rock to his brother's head or however he did it. And have his life completely torpedoed. His heart was poisoned with bitterness and resentment. And it was easier for him to take out his problems on his brother than to trust God. Abel did nothing to deserve murder. Except to live a righteous life. One moment of insanity defined Cain's legacy. And what I want you to see here is that the seeds for great evil live within each of us. Cain was not some bad guy. I think one of the the great myths of our society and our world is that there are good guys and that there are bad guys. And that makes really good superhero movies. For there to be good guys and there to be bad guys. But the reality is that within each and every one of us is the capability and the possibility of great evil. We like to think about there being bad guys, being people like Adolf Hitler. People like Larry Nassar, like the pharma bro, Martin Scarelli. I don't think he deserves a name. I don't know. Or Vladimir Putin. We think those guys are the bad guys and we're the good guys. But friends, the, the potential for great evil lives within each and every one of us. Sin unrestrained, selfish motives. That's really what's behind each of these guys. They want what they want and not what the Lord wants. And the second that you start thinking that you're exempt from evil, that you're not one of those bad guys, that's when the sin that's crouching at your door has gained the upper ground. And it's ready to attack that you are exempt. Friends, I'm not exempt (laughs) None of us are exempt. And so church, what does it take to resist evil and to rule over sin as God told Cain that you must rule over it? Two things. Two things that it takes to rule over sin. The first thing that it takes to rule over your sin is a depth of self-insight and honesty that is profound. Profound self-insight and honesty. It means that you're gonna need to sit by yourself, maybe with a, a piece of paper and a pen, and think about the desires in your life and where they're leading you and what they're doing to you and what, where it's taking you. After Cain kills his brother, the Lord comes to him and asks him questions. Now, anytime that God asks questions, it's not for God's benefit, it's for Cain's benefit. God already knows the answer to these questions. He's trying to give Cain an opportunity. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, this is an interesting play on words. If you remember, Abel was a keeper of the sheep. And so now he's saying, Am I the keeper of the keeper? He's, he's saying, that's not my responsibility. And the Lord is obviously saying, yes, it is. You know what you have done. You see, sin has this mentality church that tells you if you don't get caught, it wasn't real sin. I wonder how many people have fallen into that trap that said, if I don't get caught, this one doesn't count. I wonder how many videos have been watched online. I wonder how many people have stolen from their employers. I wonder how many forged uh, documents have been signed. I wonder how many elections have been stolen. Whatever it might be, I wonder how many people said, if you don't get caught, it's not actually bad. I said elections be stolen. I was talking about, I was thinking of Watergate. And Richard Nixon, but I then just gave a ton of political fodder. Okay, so that wasn't what I was going for. I'm sorry. Usually, I tell Michael to stop giving me crazy looks, and this time he gave me a crazy look, and I was like, "No, that one deserved it." Sorry, guys. All right. Um, Make no mistake. Cain was already caught. He couldn't hide from the Lord. And friends, I don't, I don't know what you have, what hidden sins and evils are in your heart. But I'll tell you, my heart is deceptive above all things. And I want to hide my sin so that I won't be found out, so that you won't think less of me. And that's what Cain is doing here. In church, we cannot do that with the Lord. He comes and he asks, and he says, be honest with me because my grace is abundant. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel says nothing in this entire passage. Do you notice that? That, that? That Abel has no words, yet his blood cries. It's screaming from the grave. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. this punishment's exceedingly light. I mean, Cain looks at it and he says, this is more than I can bear. But when we look at it, when an ancient reader would look at it, they would read this and say, he's going easy. Because any ancient reader that reads the original text would look at this text and say, well, we know what the punishment is, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Cain deserved to die. And yet God just says, that I'm going to send you out as a wanderer. And Cain looks at his punishment and he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. This tells us that he's absolutely not repentant. Because every unrepentant person says, You're not being fair. This is Cain's problem the whole time. He doesn't think God's being fair. He didn't think God was being fair before. And now God is being more than fair. He's being generous to Cain. He's being merciful to Cain, way more than what he deserves. And Cain still says, my punishment is more than I can bear. We oftentimes look at this in our own life and we feel similarly, similarly. Friend, if you think that you are basically a good person who deserves for God to love them, then the message of hell and what Jesus teaches on hell is going to feel like more than you can bear. It's going to feel really harsh. But until you understand that you're a sinner and that all of your sins deserve the righteous judgment of God, And then to receive anything better than that is God's grace to you. No matter how good of a life you've lived, your life is still riddled with sin. And the scriptures say that the wages of sin are death. You deserve death. Anything more than death is grace. And Cain was receiving grace here. Jesus will never make sense until you understand this the death of Jesus, why did he have to die? It will never make sense until you understand that you deserve death. If you're basically a good person, why would Jesus have to die? Couldn't he just take a few licks for your sin, your small sin? But when you realize just how evil your own heart is, then you come to love and appreciate the sacrificial love of Christ more and more. You see, the gospel is not sweet unless you see your own need for it. The gospel is not sweet until you see your own need for it. A jeweler who's trying to sell diamonds, he lays out a piece of black cloth and places the diamonds on top of it. Because it's with the darkness, the black cloth, that you're able to see the beauty of the jewel as it sits on there. And the good news of the gospel is that jewel that looks most beautiful when you understand the hidden evils and darkness of your own soul. If you want to rule over sin, the first thing you need is great self-insight and honesty. And the second thing that you need if you want to rule over sin is to be examining your heart and seeing where your desires are pulling you away from God and toward self worship. You must be examining your heart and seeing where your desires are pulling you away from self worship. That's the, actually the same thing that I just said. And then the second thing that you need is that you need to understand the overwhelming grace of God. You need to understand the overwhelming grace of God. Verse 14, behold you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face and I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. This is a question that uh, will be great during our Q&A uh, later. We do a Q&A 10 minutes after the, the service and so we just kind of meet up right over here and uh, Jonathan McClatchy, one of our, our church members, helps us do this Q&A. And uh, who's Cain afraid of here? As far as I know, there's only four people on planet Earth at this point. Oh, Actually, just three. Is he afraid of his mom and dad? We really don't know who he's afraid of. And, and it, there are a lot of theories. And so if you want to come and theorize with us later, we invite you to do that. But one thing that we do know about the Genesis account is that it's not exhaustive, meaning that not everything that happened in the early days of the world is recorded here in in Genesis. And we also see that the number of people in the world is not like millions and millions. Cain is saying, if someone finds me, they're going to know who I am by looking at me. They're going to know I'm Cain, and they're going to kill me because they've already heard the news of what I did to my brother. And so whatever's going on, it's a very limited number of people who would be around, who could recognize Cain, such as his own family, and know what he had done. Cain is obviously unrepentant, undeserving, and yet God has grace for him still. Still, God protects him. Verse 15. After Cain says, my, my judgment is more than I can bear, God says this to him, not so, If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. That is so much grace. What we see in this passage over and over again, what we see throughout Genesis, is people misunderstanding who God is saying God is a tyrant, God is unfair, God is not merciful. This is what we see over and over again is a misconception of who God is. And then when God actually acts, when he actually speaks, his speech pours forth grace and kindness and tenderness and love and compassion. Our hearts are prone to wonder in the way that we oftentimes think that God is a tyrant. That he is unfair with us. Yet when he speaks, his heart is for you. And here his heart is for Cain. Cain deserved death. God spared him of death and said, you're just going to be a wanderer. And not only that, but God gave him more than what he deserved. He gave him mercy by not giving him death. And then he gave him grace by putting this mark on his head that said, if anyone kills you, they'll receive seven times as bad. He has the unmerited favor of God. Yet he was unrepentant. If God cares this much for Cain, you better believe he cares for you. You better believe that in the midst of your sin, that he cares for you. There's this misconception that to be a Christian, you got to get your life right. You got to get your life picked up, put together first. You got to you got to make sure that you're doing everything right. And this flies in the face of what the scriptures teach because what the scriptures teach is that all we need is him. That that it's not up to you to get your life right. Yes, you need to repent of your sins and turn and face the Lord. But he doesn't call you to repent of your sins before he gives you the unmerited favor. Of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He did not come for people who have their lives put together, church. He came for people who are a broken mess, like you and me. We might hide it well, but that is the truth. We can boldly confess the hidden evils of our heart because God's grace is always more. As Charles Spurgeon put it, he said, Little sin requires a little Savior. But my Savior is great, and so therefore I know that my sin also is great. And as we search our hearts with that self-insight and honesty, we see the sin crouching at our door, Jesus becomes greater and greater because he conquers sin and death. Church, Abel, he did nothing to deserve death, except live righteously. Yet his blood cries out from the grave, the innocent dying for the guilty. Just as Christ, the greater Abel, did nothing to deserve the death that he deserved. Yet his blood, it cries out on our behalf, declaring us innocent. That his blood was shed for us, as he hung on the cross as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abel's blood about this. He says, Jesus, the, the mediator of a new covenant, his blood speaks a better word than the word than the blood of Abel. Friends, has has Christ's blood spoken for you? Are you riddled with guilt? Are you riddled with anxiety? Are you always worried about being better than those around you? Accept the unmerited favor of the God of the universe. It's not because you're a good person. It's because of the gospel. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died the death that we we deserve to die. And that because of that, because he resurrected triumphantly, Three days later, we get to be one with him and get to have relationship with God Almighty. On the night that he was betrayed, Christ took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Take these in remembrance of, of me. It's actually kind of a weird thing when you think about it. We're almost reinterpreting, doing a little drama, a little play of Christ dying on the cross for us each week. And it's meant to be a symbol that points us forward toward Christ and what he did on the cross. And as we tear off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the juice or the wine, we're reminded that his body was crushed for us, that his blood was shed for us. Our hearts are softened. We're made to remember what he has done for us. So let's stand as we pray and prepare ourselves. Father, as we prepare ourselves to receive this meal, would you give us a view of your grace and your kindness? Would you help us to hear the blood of Christ crying out on our behalf? To know what he has done for us and to, to experience it anew this morning. God, we thank you for this communion meal. We pray that we will take it in a deserving way. And we pray for anyone who does not know Christ personally. That this morning would be a time when they might put their faith and hope in him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.